This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 29th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, the end of 2021 finds us in a time of very rapid change. On the one hand, the epidemic curve is rising rapidly as Omicron has spread around the world and has largely replaced the SARS-CoV-2 strains that were already circulating. On the other hand, new approaches to preventing and treating disease have been approved in several countries over the past couple of weeks. Today, I'd like to ask how you might approach a few clinical scenarios given these new tools that, that are now available. But before that, let's look at two studies that we published this week. Both address the question of how well vaccines work to protect people against the Omicron variant. They come from two very different settings. Let's start with a study of booster doses that comes from Israel. What did we learn in this study? Steve, as we've discussed before, Israel has the earliest experience with large-scale use of booster doses. They use BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine. In this study, the investigators measured the ability of serum to neutralize virus. They compared serum derived from individuals who'd received two doses with those who'd received three doses. The investigators measured neutralization using isolated viruses, sort of the more difficult, but perhaps the gold standard assay. They looked at four different viral isolates, what they called the wild type or the original strain, beta, delta, and Omicron. In all cases, three doses were better than two. But the results were particularly striking for the beta and Omicron isolates. For these, many recipients of two doses of vaccines had serum with little neutralizing activity. A third dose, however, boosted neutralization levels considerably above levels that they hypothesized should be protective. So what's the takeaway from the study? I think that there are several factors that we need to keep in mind when we look at these data. Each group had only 20 individuals, and we don't know how representative they are of the population at large. In fact, the two groups were fairly different from each other. The serum samples from those with two doses were drawn almost six months after completing the vaccine schedule, while all of the booster serum were collected within a month of vaccination. And most importantly, we don't know how well any of the in vitro results like these correlate with real protection. On one hand, antibody levels do generally roughly correlate. However, the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine against infection caused by the beta strain has actually been pretty good, even though there was little neutralizing activity seen here. That's likely to be a matter of timing when results were measured. Nevertheless, it's important to keep these limitations in mind. So Eric, I think that there are several important observations here. And as you point out, the sample size is small. The endpoint assessments are limited and focused. However, they give us very important insights, I believe, to what the biology is likely to be. That serum from vaccine recipients can neutralize variants, including the Omicron variant. However, issues considering who's likely to have higher titers, thus antibody levels circulating that are likely to be neutralizing to Omicron. And as you point out, is this related to receiving three doses of vaccination or more recently receiving a vaccination? And it's impossible to tease this out from these data. However, it is something which we will come to understand soon, I hope, through additional studies. It also highlights the issue 
of what protection means and how we determine a correlate for this protection. And as we've discussed before, is the outcome of interest acquisition or infection with a new variant of SARS-CoV-2, such as Omicron, or progression to significant clinical illness, or to transmissibility to the community that one is part of. All relevant outcomes, but they're different, and correlates may be different for these different outcomes. And in our speed to understand what's going on, we sometimes conflate these different outcomes that are all important for us to understand. And lastly, the issue of what leads to protection. Is it solely antibody and neutralizing antibody? Or are there cellular responses that are important as well? Likely it's an integration of immune responses. However, it is much easier to measure antibody responses than cellular responses. Thus, we have much more data in this space. You know, Lindsay, after expressing all those caveats, I think a listener might wonder, why are we publishing this stuff? Um, because we don't know the real significance of it. And I think the answer is information is useful, even if it's incomplete. And because things are happening so rapidly, I think we felt that it's important to get out the good quality, but perhaps incomplete stories early on so that it can help inform discussion because we have to be making decisions right now, even in the face of imperfect data. So, Eric, I think that's an incredibly important point, which is how we manage rapidly available information, which is intrinsically incomplete, given the need for real-time information versus perfect data, which require often many months to fully collect and analyze. And this is something we as a journal, but also our community has to appropriately balance the speed of information, which may change as more information is generated and added to our understanding versus complete and perfect information, which often is delayed and therefore not as useful. It's a struggle we all have been dealing with over the last two years, but one that's an important balance for all of us to keep in mind. So the second study this week looks at the actual effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine against disease caused by the Omicron variant. What did the investigators find there? This study comes from South Africa, a country where vaccines still haven't reached a large part of the population. The researchers here used data from an HMO to determine who'd been infected. They used a test negative design to determine the effectiveness of vaccination against hospitalization and used a variety of data sources to ascertain vaccination history. They present very interesting data about the prevalence of each viral variant in the population. In South Africa, the beta strain accounted for almost all infections until about May when it was replaced by Delta. Delta remained dominant until the beginning of November when the rate of Omicron infections rapidly rose, becoming responsible for more than half of infection. Using these data, they compare vaccine effectiveness in September and October, a time when infections were almost entirely caused by Delta, with mid-November to the first week in December, a time when the majority of infections were Omicron, and they used these periods as proxies for each strain. There are many interesting statistics in the report, but the bottom line is that the vaccine was pretty effective in both periods. During the first period, there was 93% efficacy. This fell to about 70% during the second period. And once again, I should note that this is protection against hospitalization rather than infection. 
It's difficult to compare this study with many other recent measures of effectiveness. Although we were not told, it's likely that many vaccine recipients received their doses fairly recently since vaccine hasn't been widely available in South Africa. Thus, the effectiveness hasn't waned as much as it has in some other countries. Nevertheless, it does seem reasonable to think that vaccines do continue to work against Omicron, at least to help prevent hospitalization and severe disease, though perhaps not quite as effective against infection. Eric, as we've seen over the last year or so, innovative designs emerging that allow us to make inference as to what is going on. And the test negative design is such an approach. However, these data are challenging, at least for me, to fully understand, in part due to potentially unmeasured residual confounding. Having said that, they are quite informative in understanding key endpoints like hospitalization. I think one of the challenges, for me at least, in understanding these data is understanding the reason for testing. As this changes over time, whether it's due to increased surveillance, emergence of novel variants that lead to high level of community transmission, change in access to testing, work or school requirements for testing, a variety of reasons why testing may change, much of which may be due to surveillance rather than symptomatology, and methodology to minimize these confounding variables are very important. In addition, we need to understand the timing of vaccination, as you suggest, in that were individuals vaccinated earlier versus later truly comparable, or were there some systematic considerations as to the timing of who was vaccinated when? Therefore, the temporal distance from vaccination to subsequent exposure to a novel variant complicated features to consider and may impact our understanding of the biology somewhat. Overall, however, I think these data are important, as you suggest, because they help us understand how vaccination in the context of an emerging rapidly transmissible variant such as Omicron still has a salutary effect on at least what I care about most, which is progression to severe illness and hospitalization. So encouraging data, but due to the methodology, their complexities and how to understand all of the refined details. Lindsay, you make a lot of good points. I want to pick up on one of those, which is the question of protection against infection, which, as you said, is more difficult to measure for methodologic reasons and hospitalization, which is somewhat simpler and and what was measured in this study. It gets to the question of what do we care about? Do we care about protection against infection or do we care about protection against hospitalization and severe illness and death? And I think that answer changes depending on how effective vaccines are. If they were highly effective against infection, then they would likely reduce transmission. And that would be a great goal. It's become increasingly clear that with the variants and with time, that the vaccines aren't as good for protecting against infection and and against transmission. And therefore, the priority might well be to protect people from getting too sick. And if the vaccines are able to do that, and they do seem to be able to do that, even in this era of Omicron, then they're still incredibly useful. 
It can certainly be frustrating for practitioners and their patients, though, to be looking at data saying, well, this doesn't really help me. The vaccine is not protecting against infection. It is really important to emphasize that the vaccines are still working against probably the most important endpoint, at least at this point in the epidemic, which is uh, keeping people alive. So I guess, Eric, I would add to that, as our understanding of SARS-CoV-2 evolves, and it changes in my mind from an epidemic to really an endemic illness, then the idea of us being exposed to it like the other four seasonal coronaviruses that we've all gotten used to, really changes from one of acquisition of infection to really progression of illness. And I completely agree with you that progression to significant illness is the most important goal in my view. And I'm not sure we're going to be able to stop transmission as this appears to be coming more of an endemic pathogen And it does require us evolving our expectations of our interventions in that does this turn into, for lack of a better concept, a common cold? And then the implications associated with that and what we need to do to help make that happen, which really is vaccination and boosting background immunity. Yes, I totally agree. And it can be frustrating for many of us, including me, who had hoped that vaccination would be the answer. It would defeat this pathogen and it would stop transmission. I think we've moved beyond that. And as it stands right now, without other interventions, our goal is exactly as you described, to make this a manageable infection rather than eliminating it. Let's turn to the clinical scenarios. Given all the new approaches that have recently become available, I'd like to ask how you would approach a few different clinical situations. I realize, as you've been saying, that we're working in the realm of incomplete information at this point, but you're both answering these questions in the hospital right now. So I, I want to know your thinking. Let me start with you, Lindsay. What would you advise a physician caring for a patient who's receiving rituximab for chronic lymphocytic leukemia, whose daughter came back from college for the holidays and after arriving home, tested positive for COVID-19? Her mother, the patient, remains PCR negative. So what would you do? So Steve, I think that we need to remember our road traveled. Two years ago, we were observing a cryptic pneumonia elsewhere in the world. A year ago, we were having vaccines just clearing FDA emergency use authorization, transforming our process of understanding disease pathogenesis and developing countermeasures to actually beginning to implement key countermeasures over the last year. And now we're in a position where we have many tools and we, as a society here in the U.S. and elsewhere, are able to gather together again and to use the variety of tools that have been developed to mitigate risk. And the scenario you raise raises several key considerations for us. In particular, who's at risk for more severe illness from SARS-CoV-2? And what type of medical treatment further augment this risk? So we know that our patients with underlying malignancy, particularly hemologic malignancy, or have undergone solid organ transplant like hearts, kidneys, lungs, livers, 
Those on immunotherapies, such as our patients who have neurologic illness, GI, rheumatologic, dermatologic, who receive a variety of immunotherapies, particularly B-cell depleting agents like rituximab. So you raise the point that someone on rituximab, which is an anti-CD20 targeting molecule, which depletes B-cells selectively, really increases their risk for infection and also for an inability to respond to vaccines. So this type of understanding allows us to understand who's at higher or highest risk and how to further apply protection. We also now have access to testing. And in the scenario you propose, strategic use of testing to protect those who are at highest risk, such as loved ones and friends who have risk factors, as I just discussed, as well as others, so that we can minimize the likelihood of their being exposed. We do need to understand that different types of rapid tests have different strengths and weaknesses in their sensitivity and specificity, and they probably detect virus at a higher level, higher amount of virus, rather than at a very low level. But this is the, the relevant parameters in protecting each other. When I have a lot of virus, I'm more infectious and therefore should be quarantined or isolated to minimize exposing others. And so in this setting, what would we do? I think optimizing protection, make sure everyone is vaccinated, especially the patient, they're boosted. There is testing going on around them as this scenario suggests. Masking is used, ventilation, and with many of my patients who are in this predicament, trying to leverage outdoor arenas and situations where there is appropriate distance and ventilation between them and a loved one that they desperately want to see while keeping them safe. And I've found that families are very understanding of this. And through applying all of these mitigation strategies, I think there are ways to safely allow family members to see each other, even in this high-risk setting. Steve, I want to violate the rules of our discussion already and speculate a little bit because we don't have tools right now, but might soon have tools that will help in a situation like this. Uh, we do use other antiviral medications as prophylactic measures to try to prevent infection. And we have monoclonal antibodies that have been shown to do that in studies in humans for SARS-CoV-2. Likewise, the small molecule drugs that are starting to come out might work to help prevent disease in those at highest risk. Now, none of the drugs are authorized to be used in this way, but I think they will be in the near future. It's very likely that there will be other options for the patient like this one with a known exposure, as opposed to just walking around all the time. So Eric, thank you for raising that, the important issue of post-exposure prophylaxis. And as we're all aware with some of the monoclonal antibody data, that in the post-exposure setting, it can be used in a highly effective way to prevent acquisition of infection and progression to illness. However, what we've witnessed with the evolution from Delta to Omicron some of these monoclonals are no longer active, in particular, the cocktail used in this setting. And that requires continued understanding of how our treatments work and how the virus is changing. And that monoclonal antibodies have 
incredible advantages to be able to leverage biology so we can target the virus strategically, but the virus can then evolve modifying key epitopes so that the antibodies no longer bind. And that is what we've seen. Where the small molecule antivirals fit in this setting, Eric, as you suggest, it's highly logical that they can be useful in this setting as we've seen with antivirals for influenza, but we need to have the systematic study to demonstrate when and how they would be beneficial in this arena. One of the advantages of monoclonal antibodies is that the technology is well worked out. We know how to make them. We know that they're relatively safe as reagents. We know how to extend their half-lives and engineer them. And that means that it's very likely that there will be new generations of monoclonal antibodies coming along all the time. And that as the virus adapts, we will have countermeasures coming up. So that makes it a little difficult for a practitioner because which monoclonal antibody is the monoclonal antibody of the day and how it's delivered, whether it's going to be by infusion or subcutaneously, whether it's used for treatment or for prophylaxis, all these things are going to change, but I think they're going to change rapidly, allowing us to continue to have tools. And Eric, I just want to point out implicit in what you're saying is that monoclonals target typically a single or combination of epitopes or targets on the viral spike protein. Vaccination elicits a much broader humoral and cellular immune response. So we shouldn't think that vaccination and monoclonals, particularly as we talk about neutralizing antibodies for vaccination, are the same thing. They're different immune responses with monoclonals being extremely targeted and potent unless the virus changes, which unfortunately we've witnessed. Yeah. And one further word about that. Vaccination is good for everybody. It's probably also a tool to be used even in this rather extreme case of someone who has a hematologic malignancy and is on a rituximab. Still, everyone deserves vaccination. It's safe. And there is some chance of a meaningful response to vaccines. So we should be offering vaccines to everyone, even those who you have a reasonable chance of not having a highly effective response. So another scenario, this, this time for Eric. An elderly man with chronic renal insufficiency had headache and fatigue. So he was tested today and he's positive. What would you advise his physician? So here's a gentleman with a couple of risk factors for developing severe disease. And so he certainly fits into the category where we would consider using some of the newer agents that are just now becoming available. Now, harking back to what you led with, Steve, the information on these agents is really early, even though many of them are authorized for use. Nevertheless, we do know that there are options right now for, for someone like this. Until recently, our only real option was monoclonal antibodies. And monoclonal antibodies do work, again, if they're used early. Of course, they have been logistically difficult because they're given by intravenous infusion um, at very high doses. Uh, it's a single infusion. Nevertheless, we have to find an infusion center, and um, that has been problematic. It's more problematic as of today than it had been because of the monoclonal antibodies that are available, only one of them, citrovimab, appears to be highly effective against the Omicron variant. And that one is available as of the day we're recording uh, in very short supply. 
So for those patients at very high risk, if you as a physician are able to obtain citrovimab, that's a reasonable choice. Now, of course, there are also small molecule drugs. There are three small molecules that are authorized right now. One we discussed recently was remdesivir. Remdesivir has been used for inpatients. It is a FDA-approved drug, so it can be used um, outside of uh, the specific protocols of an emergency use authorization. And the evidence that we published suggested that three days of remdesivir administered intravenously to outpatients is very highly effective at preventing progressive disease. This is a very attractive use of the drug. In fact, in this outpatient study, it looked to be far more effective than it is in inpatients, most of whom are presenting later in illness. So this would be great if we were able to get it. But once again, there are logistical issues. It needs to be given in an infusion center and it needs to be given for three days, at least according to the protocol used in this study. So that will necessarily limit its use. There are now though two orally bioavailable drugs, Paxlovid and uh, Molnupiravir. Of the two of them, we know less about Paxlovid because the data as of right now are not yet published. Yet the top line results that we've heard about suggest that it's highly effective, perhaps more effective than Molnupiravir, the alternative. Given that, Paxlovid may be a first choice drug for many patients in uh, this scenario. Although again, once again, it would help to see the final data. One thing to keep in mind about these drugs is that they each have their drawbacks. Molnupiravir, as we've discussed in the past, works by altering the viral RNA. And therefore, there's at least a theoretical risk that use of molnupiravir will lead to increased viral mutagenesis and maybe developing new strains of virus at an accelerated rate. In addition, the study we published showed that while effective, it was not highly effective. I, I guess I'd use that, that description. Paxlovid, which looks better in the top line results, is a combination drug using an antiviral together with ritonavir. Ritonavir is there to inhibit the metabolism of the drug. But because um, it works on the cytochrome oxidase system, it affects the metabolism of many, many, many other drugs. So the drug-drug interactions with Paxlovid may limit its use. And it's going to be important for practitioners to think through all the other medications that an individual is on before turning to Paxlovid. So Eric, I want to highlight a key set of concepts that um, you raised. As we think about our patients, there are key clinical phenotypes that lend themselves to different interventions. What do I mean? There's the pre-exposure prophylaxis of those at high risk, particularly high risk of not responding to prophylactic interventions like vaccine. There's post-exposure prophylaxis. Those who may be exposed to the virus directly, such as the first case we discussed. And then there's early treatment in those who may be in the beginning of illness before it progresses to uh, clinical significance. And different studies have looked at different agents at these different key time points. And I raise it because uh, we as a community need to understand this as we look at interventions, and understand the science behind the benefit 
and as we look at our patients and how we can apply these benefits to them. And currently, in the context of the Omicron surge, presuming this is the dominant variant in your community, then which monoclonals remain available, or at least available through emergency use authorization as opposed to in development? And as you noted, in the pre-exposure arena, the combination of tixagovimab and sigavimab in the pre-exposure setting, the combination antibodies have been authorized, although not extensively studied, to allow protection to those who failed to respond to vaccine. Then we have the post-exposure setting, which unfortunately we don't have EUA-cleared therapies, particularly on the monoclonal antibody front, available today. And then in the early treatment, we have sotrovimab, as you mentioned, which retains activity in vitro and likely clinically, although we need clinical data on all of these interventions, to demonstrate continued benefit in vivo and not just in vitro. This somewhat reminds me, as we've discussed previously, of interventions developed 70, 80 years ago by Max Finland here in Boston, when pneumococcus was a major pathogen and still is a major pathogen, although we've forgotten about these other pathogens in the context of COVID. And when antibiotics were still in their infancy, if existent at all, and he used the concept of the Quailung reaction, which was to understand the serotype of the infecting pneumococcus to use horse antisera. Will we in the future be sequencing the infecting virus so we can then apply monoclonals that we know are to be active against the infecting virus, assuming that COVID doesn't behave in a way where one variant sweeps the globe, wiping out all the other variants. Rather, there's co-circulation of different variants, and we have to be in a better position to determine which of our treatments are active against those variants, particularly in the monoclonal setting. So there is precedent in thinking about this. We will need to understand how this virus behaves to understand how our response should be coordinated. But clinically, our therapies will be applied differentially in the pre-exposure, post-exposure, and early treatment arenas. And we all need to pay attention to which therapies have data and evidence to support which uh, scenarios to be used in. Lindsay, almost all the agents we're discussing are authorized under an emergency use authorization. This is a very unusual situation because under an EUA, it's important to remember that the drugs can only be used specifically in the way authorized so that unlike approved drugs like remdesivir, uh, where when a study comes out and says you can give it for three days to outpatients, you can give it for three days to outpatients, the EUA limits the use of drugs to the specific authorization. And that means that we've got a lot less flexibility with these. And as new studies come out, it's going to be important to keep up with what the FDA is allowing for use of that drug at that point. I'm sure we'll see a lot of these uses expand. I'm sure we'll see more and more drugs getting approved and giving us greater flexibility. But for now, maybe a limitation, and you'll see that if you're working at a hospital, that the pharmacy is going to limit uses to specifically the authorization. So third scenario, another for Lindsay. 
A young woman with no risk factors is hospitalized with shortness of breath, and she's markedly hypoxemic when evaluated. Is there anything new we have to offer her? Well, Steve, thank you for asking me a question for which the advances are a bit more limited. Compared to two years ago, we have a lot more to offer in terms of optimizing supportive care, how to improve ventilation through mechanical positioning, anti-inflammatories such as dexamethasone or glucocorticoids, and even other anti-inflammatory modulators such as jack kinase inhibitors. However, we've not made a lot of advances on how do we handle those who have become significantly ill. In part, this is due to that it may not be directly related to the virus, at least in the majority of healthy people who get severely ill, as opposed to our immunocompromised patients. Thus, this is more of a complex host modulation scenario rather than turning off the virus, which is a more straightforward proposition with less ancillary toxicities. So at this point, the most important thing is to prevent people from getting sick, as we've already discussed. Once they are significantly ill, such as hypoxemic, then our treatments are much more supportive and typically along the aberrant host response pathways, including clotting and other types of pathology associated with COVID. And here, the advances are much more limited because the variability of the complicating features are just so much greater. So Steve, I look forward to big advances here, but I hope that through our preventive modalities, we have so many fewer patients who require hospitalization because of hypoxemia. Lindsay, everything you say is true. I would just reemphasize the fact though that relatively early on in the outbreak, there were significant advances in how we treat these patients. And that clearly resulted in a decreasing death rate. And we still benefit from those. Yes, there haven't been any big changes recently, but I think that physicians are doing a much better job of managing these hospitalized uh, inpatients and that patients have benefited tremendously from that. So Eric, you're absolutely right. As I said before, over the last two years, we have had tremendous advances in our understanding of the pathogenesis of illness and of how to treat it. And over the last year, how to prevent it. And this has put us in such a stronger position compared to where we were even months ago. But as a local poet once wrote, we have miles to go before we sleep. And I'm optimistic that we'll continue to have tremendous advances but we still have to continue to work hard in taking care of our patients and protecting each other. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.